3: Howdy, folks. Everybody that's listened to the podcast before will know what that sound means. It means that we are going to be joined today by our favorite guest from up in Canada, Dr. Scott Stevens with Ducks Unlimited Canada. Scott, you weren't expecting that, were you?
1: I wasn't, but I I appreciate having walk-up music. (laughs)
3: Well, you deserve it. You've been a, a loyal guest on the podcast and always delivering good information. So it's the least we could do, pretty much literally the least we could do. So uh, happy, happy to deliver that your way. And, and yeah, thanks for joining us here today. It is early September and always an exciting time of year because so many things are starting to happen in the waterfowl world. Waterfowl hunting season is upon us things are really starting to to crank up. And so I I know you have been, as you always do, first week of September, get out and chase those blue wings. And so that's one of the things we want to talk with you about, sort of get an annual update on the the hunting experiences of of Dr. Scott Stevens, and and then we we actually are going to transition and talk about something else that is just sort of fell in our lap here in terms of an opportunity that we we think is going to be useful for our listeners. We're going to talk about wing plumage on blue wing teal, something that was was triggered by a Facebook post, <laughs> and so said, "Well, let's just see if we can talk about this." So, uh, so Scott, I guess let's just launch right in. Give us the lowdown on your your. Travels out in the field last week, chasing blue-winged teal. What did you see? How how successful were you?
1: Yeah, I, I did find pretty good success, but I definitely had to adapt. I went to a different location than has been my usual location over the past number of years. So, you know, with the drought that we're experiencing here across, well, across the whole Prairie Pothole Region, but definitely across the Canadian Prairies. You know, I had to adapt my tactics, and I think that's probably going to be uh, a key feature for anybody that's coming to the Prairies to hunt this fall. Is if you've done it before under normal water conditions, you're going to have to adapt and uh, do things a little differently. So I had to do that. I ended up in a different location because there was there was better water in the alternate location, and you know, my recipe is if if you find the right water depth, which in my mind is about four or five inches of water. You find blue wing teal this time of year. So I was able to find some, was able to hunt them for about three days here, the first, second, and third. And yeah, had good success doing that and enjoyed it.
3: Did you end up going back to the same place each of those three days or were you moving around to other sites? Well, I was
1: same general location, but definitely hunted different Specific locales then um which is typical for on the prairies, you know you you hunt a spot one day and you're scouting that afternoon for a spot for the next day, but yeah, there were good numbers of birds around this marsh system that I was hunting, so yeah, I was able to find three locations and uh you know i I think if I had camped out for a week, I would have been able to bounce back and forth among a number of general locations and seen success so it was a good time of the year. The weather was beautiful, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed myself.
3: And when you're scouting for blue wings, are, you're just looking for the birds, right? Are, or are you also kind of factoring in whether the wetland that you're seeing them on or any wetlands nearby are producing any kind of groceries for the ducks? What's the main thing that you're looking for there, just the birds themselves?
1: Yeah, I, I'm just looking for the ducks. Um, you know, if, if I had the time to get out in those locations earlier in the year, I might look at groceries. But you know many of the places that i'm hunting the the primary food that i believe the ducks are feeding on is sago pondweed mm. so you know that's that's a submerged aquatic plant you know that that grows in many of the wetlands uh across the prairies and yeah when you find it you tend to find blue wings and and uh, a, whole, a whole number of ducks take advantage of that. So, But I, I was looking for the ducks. So, you know, driving around, I, I went out, out in my kayak and took my binoculars along with me. Um, you know, the nice thing is blue wings are pretty easy to spot, especially when they get up off the water. You can see that, that bright blue patch flashing. And uh, yeah, so found some birds and, uh, and they cooperated. So good trip.
3: So, so up there in the prairie, Scott, when you're out scouting for birds, what is a, what's sort of like the minimum number that you want to, that you want to see on a given wetland to, to convince yourself that it's going to be worth going back the next day? And I kind of I bring this question up because I was out scouting this past weekend myself down here. And if I find a place in, you know, it's sort of interior Southern U S if I see a couple hundred teal on it, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. But then, if I were to go to Louisiana or the coast of Texas, some of those prime uh, habitats for blue-winged teal, I might expect to or hope to see a thousand or two thousand. Now, I wouldn't necessarily need that many in order to make a successful hunt, but I'm just kind of wondering how those that type of image would compare with what you're looking for there on the prairies.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, you might need a couple thousand to end up with what you need, Mike. But <laughs> yeah. Um,
3: yeah, I think I would. In well, the loc- okay, fair enough. <laughs>
1: In the locations that I was looking at, yeah, if if I found sort of 100 plus birds, that was a pretty good concentration. Now, you know, this was kind of a, a marsh system that was probably several thousand acres in size. So, you know, I knew there were several thousand blue wings in the area, but when I looked at particular spots that I might hunt, Yeah, I was looking for sort of 100 birds or more. Um, And I I even spent some time, you know, one afternoon setting setting on the edge of the marsh and just watching kind of traffic and seeing how many birds were trading by and and that kind of thing. So, you know, that helped increase my confidence that there were were appropriate number of birds in the area and they were moving through the areas that I planned to hunt. Um, So, yeah.
3: Scott, we talked a lot about drought over the course of the summer, and that's going to continue to be the case. And so, naturally, I do have a question about that and whether, uh, well, I guess how things continue to be there. In, in Manitoba, you, you're you in Manitoba, and you hunted in Manitoba. Uh, so, that's going to be the nature of your, you know, the lens through which you're viewing this right now. Right. How, how are we in terms of drought conditions? And was your hunting, obviously, you said it was a little bit different, but how did this year Differ, I guess, in terms of the difficulty or the challenges that you faced because of the drought?
1: Yeah, so drought is definitely still at play. Um, You know, over the past several weeks, we've got a couple rain events, you know, maybe an inch or two at times. I know there were some areas that maybe got three inches of rain across southwestern Manitoba. All that really did, I mean, the soil moisture was so dry, all that soaked into the ground, none of it really ran off into wetlands. Um, So didn't change wetland conditions. Now, as we've talked about previously, you know, soil moisture conditions as we go into winter can be important because if you have good soil moisture and then we have things freeze up, that sets the stage for any snow that you accumulate to run into the wetlands come springtime. But yeah, the way that impacted things for me in the fall was areas that I had traditionally hunted when I visited them there was maybe a whole quarter section of, of land. It was DU owned land that was covered with water, shallow water, and was wetland and all of that was dry. So, you know, the areas that I was looking for that three or four inches of water changed dramatically on the landscape. Um, you know, in these marsh systems, they shrunk back. So I was looking at different areas, uh, to, to locate birds. But in my mind, that water depth is, is really key. Um, You know, the... My, my my joking description of uh, the right water depth for teal is um, belly deep to a chihuahua. <laughs> you know that, that's 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 what you're looking for when you're hunting blue wing teal. That's um, good.
3: That's a good way to describe it for Dr. Tom Mormon. He can probably relate to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think his retriever is a chihuahua. So yeah, that's that's perfect <laughs> for him. He just sends the dog out, and if it's belly deep, he's good to go. That's so, right. so yeah. The the way that impacted things is where you found that water depth in these marsh systems. You know, some marshes were just dry but you know where you found that depth changed on the landscape and so you had to scout and find where you were getting that depth where you know there were things like sago pond weed growing and where birds were stacked in but uh yeah i think in duck hunting there are a couple truisms for me and that's don't argue with the birds so find where the birds are and where they want to be and go there and then ducks don't like getting shot so you know pressure is important too and if if i'd hunted the same spot for several days i would drive birds out of there which i did not do.
3: Scott, were there any notable observations about other duck species that would be worth mentioning here? I know blue wings were going to be your focus, but you can't help but see some of the other birds, but anything notable in that regard?
1: Yeah, I, I guess what I did notice, I mean, I was in a little bit different area, but in the past, I've seen good numbers of mallards, you know, they're all, they're all sort of brown and you know still still in molt and eclipse plumage this time of year but i did not see many mallards you know in the past i would see flocks of several hundred mallards field feeding in the afternoon and evening and you know, they're not a target this time of the year for me, but I did not see that, you know. So I saw a few ducks in the marsh, you know, some mallards, some gadwall, a few pintails, but definitely not the numbers that I'm used to seeing, you know, under more normal water conditions. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think my observations lined up with what our expectations had been, which there will not be as many ducks. They will largely be adult ducks. So, you know, as I was shooting blue wings, at least, was looking at sort of age ratios, and uh, you know that that maybe is the transition to our next topic. If if we're ready to go there, sure,
3: we're ready. Yep, we are.
1: That was next on my list. You know, when when you're harvesting blue wings in the fall, the the cool thing about blue wings is you can tell the age and sex, um, and age being either you know a young bird that that was hatched you know in May or June versus a bird that is older than one and then uh you know males and females you can distinguish those by characteristics on the wing so you know actually there are times when birds will make a swing and are going downwind of the decoys and make a turn to come back that that I will pick out a bird, you know, based on some of those wing characteristics. And I'll look for, you know, that big, big piece of white on the wing that is indicative of males and tend to select for those. But what I did notice is ratios of adults to juveniles was much higher, you know, more adults, fewer juveniles than has been commonplace for me when, when I've hunted blue wings, you know, over the years, um, you know i would say in in some of those better years it was probably even ratios or a little higher juveniles to adults but this year it was it was kind of 3 to 1 adults to to juveniles so i think that also lines up with sort of the predictions that, that us duckologists made in the summer that, you know, there were not going to be great production and there were going to be lots of adults in the in the fall flight this year.
3: And Scott, it's also going to be interesting to see how the harvest shakes out here at some of the southern latitudes here over the next few weeks, because we talk often about how the ecology of blue-winged teal sets up such that the the adult males are the first ones to migrate south because they've been, they have no... Uh, parental care responsibilities. Once they finish their responsibilities with regard to breeding, they go off and begin their wing molt, and then they're the first that are prepared to fly south. And so that's why the vanguard in the, uh, on the way south during fall typically is dominated by adult male birds. And it's going to be really interesting to see what that harvest composition is at southern latitudes this year, especially early on. And I've had conversations here in the office with Chris Jennings. He has been speaking with some people. He's going to have some migration reports coming out here over the next few days. And there are a good number of birds in in different locations here at very southern latitudes. And in some cases, notably large numbers of teal. And you certainly wouldn't expect that to be driven by a lot of production. So we got to talking and I was just wondering if, again, speculation, which we don't often do, but it's, it's fun to think. About in these situations, wondering if and let's just say you know you kind of have to take people's word for it when they say we're seeing unusually large concentrations of blue-winged teal in this location. Let's just take them for their word and let's say it is sort of a, an anomaly relative to normal years. You kind of have to wonder what the composition of those flocks of birds are. Is that going to be? Um, a larger than normal percentage of, let's say, adult females that maybe for that that didn't breed, or maybe they were unsuccessful breeding, and maybe they they whatever, however their decision process works, they. Um, they quit their breeding efforts earlier, and then they allowed them to get on the wing south earlier than normal. So I, I don't know. That's it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Did that run through your mind at all when you were out in the field?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I I didn't think about that, but I'm not at a southern latitude, yeah. so you know the story you <laughs> laid out makes pretty good sense. And and I would say we speculate all the time.
3: Mike, it's Come informed, on. it's um, informed speculation. <laughs> we do
1: we we do <laughs> mostly speculation, but uh, that makes sense to me that there were likely more females who either finished early, you know, made one attempt and then called it good or or didn't attempt to breed. And, you know, they would have molted and been ready to migrate sooner than normal. And, you know, we may be left with, um, you know, a more limited pool of successful breeders and and the limited young of the year, you know maybe what's left on northern areas. So uh, blue wings are really cool I think cuz this time of the year, you know, I still have lots of blue wings around my country and in, in breeding areas and I know we have blue wings in Louisiana and probably blue wings in showing up in Mexico right now. So, you know, it's a time of the year that at least for this species we have we have a distribution really across the whole continent which which I think is cool. You know, it's one, one of the reasons I, I have an affinity for these little blue-winged ducks.
3: They certainly are cool birds, and we had uh, we featured them in one of our species, our first-ever species profile here earlier this week. Uh-
0: you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
3: Maybe it was last week, and, and that was a fun little bird to discuss for a number of reasons, many of which we've kind of already touched on here. But given what we spoke about a minute ago, speculating on maybe the birds that we're seeing at southern latitudes this time of year, this year might be might have a higher percentage of females, uh, might all be adults, uh, you might have overall lower young in, in the bag. This gives us an opportunity to talk a little more about that and tell hunters how they can identify the the sex and the age of these birds based on on wing plumage and of course the important thing to remember here is that this time of year male blue winged teal do not have that slate gray head and that bright white crescent on their um, on their That's cheek right. you know in order to easily identify them so you have to you have to base it on those wing characteristics and so I want to transition here we'll try this uh, to try to share a bit of education in this regard and maybe people when we're going to post some material. In the show notes for this particular episode where people can go online, see pictures, learn more about it. But this was, as I mentioned at the outset, triggered by a, uh, a Facebook post that I, that I put up last week. I think I was actually promoting our blue-winged teal species profile, and I included in that post a picture, a photo, of a flock of blue-winged teal. It was a photo that was taken by Michael Furtman, very generous in allowing us to use some of his photos for various promotional um, purposes here. And it was a photo that showed this flock of teal, all but one were, were drakes. And the the teal were banking in in a way that allowed you to see those wing patterns that you talked about where sometimes you will look at for, look for those wing patterns before you uh, before you pull the trigger and try to you know harvest a a drake and so in my post I just I put something out there it said bonus points if you can tell me how many of these birds are adult males of course the males given the picture that I posted it was taken in the spring and so you could see the bright white crescent slate gray head. So identifying male from female was easy. But in order to determine which was, and this is kind of where I messed up with my my wordology, is <laughs> I used the terms adult versus juvenile. And that's kind of another part of this story that we'll get to here in a minute. But that post stimulated quite a bit of, of comments and questions about people wanting to know how you can actually identify um, males from females or in this case the the young of the year the adults versus versus juveniles and so let's attempt this scott and like i said we'll have some photos that people can reference um, that we'll attach or link to in the show notes and so when we're looking at these wings let's first this time of year let's first help people identify if it's a drake or a hen and and i know you said that you look at the amount of white in what are called the secondary coverts that's that group of feathers that that is immediately in front of the speculum. The speculum on the wing is, is the bright, typically the bright portion of the wing in, in, uh, in ducks. And in this case, for blue wing teal, it's going to be the portion that's the iridescent green of, of varying degrees. So you look for the amount of white there, but then the amount of iridescent green also is, a, is an indicator for male versus female. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so maybe to try and simplify it and take some of the duckology jargon out, if, if you're looking at the wing, you know, the front edge of the wing is where you have the blue patch, and then, and then you have a little strip of white in males, not so much in females, and then the green speculum. So from the front to the back, it's blue, white, green. And, you know, when I look at birds on the wing, that white shows up really well and tells you it's a male and And I'll admit you know I'm not good enough to pick out the the juvenile males have some little gray spots on some of that white you know near nearer to the body on the bird that's pretty subtle to to pick out on the wing as as birds are flying so I'm not able to do that, but I can definitely see that big chunk of white that says yep, this is a male and uh, those those show up when they're on the wing so that's kind of the male side. Females, the blue patch is, is there's less blue color. It's more subtle, not as bright. And then the white, there's, there's more brown and gray and blue than there is white, even, even on adult females from my perspective. So, you know, if, if you see a bird and it's kind of light blue on the leading edge of the wing and you don't see much white, good bet that's a female and, and the male's, you know that white shows up really well
3: yeah the other uh, the other part of that that i mentioned at the outset is the the degree of the iridescent green all males have bright green iridescent and the females it's more of a dull Green or iridescent green. That's that's another good tell for males and females. And then, yeah, that, as you said, I'm not going to attempt to differentiate adult from juvenile uh, females. You kind of have to look at pictures. And like I said, we'll have some links and people can go look at that. There are some different uh, patterns on the feathers that can help you differentiate adult from from juvenile in the females but yeah typically the males are a little bit, a bit more easy a bit easy to uh, to differentiate at that at that age class and so uh, anything else there on just the identification of the wings maybe
1: the one thing i'll mention is you know my my sort of personal favorite situation to be in when i'm hunting is to kind of have the the sun and the wind at my back um, because when birds are working and you know going downwind you can see all these wing characteristics and you know you can you can play these goofy games that at least you know biologists who are duck hunters play where you know you try and select for nice males or adult males if you can Um, with blue wings that's probably just luck if you end up with more adult males than juvenile males but uh yeah you can you can definitely Play those games better when you have the advantage of having good light and the birds working downwind with the sun at your back. So
3: One of the other things I want to do here before we close out is address the other aspect of the Facebook post that generated some questions and confusion, admittedly, on the part of some people because as I touched on a minute ago, I asked the question, a little quiz that I posed was how many adult versus juvenile drakes are in this photo. I also mentioned that the photo was taken during spring. So I realized that whenever I posted the photo, but I was thinking, and this is, we're going to introduce some duckology here, but when, whenever I posted it, I said, ah, nobody's going to be persnickety about that. Well, <laughs> I was wrong. There were multiple people that became persnickety because what they said is like, well, this image, this picture looks like it was taken in the spring. And given that all blue wing teal breed at one year of age or in their first breeding year, wouldn't all of these technically be adults? And so I'm like, well, okay, if you want to go there, we'll have to go there. All right, so let me clarify. So what I then started doing, I had to realize that um, we use, and that is right, in that all blue wings, all dabbling ducks and diving ducks uh, will breed at one year of age. And so, yes, you can make the argument that once they attain sexual maturity, they're, by some definition, an, an adult. So so what has happened, and this is the part that I want to explain for the people that will actually post this on that, on that, um, on that Facebook post. And so when it comes to, so what waterfowl biologists do for, instead of adult versus juvenile, although we do use those, there's another way that, another type of nomenclature that we can use, and it's called hatch year versus after hatch year. And so a hatch year bird, that, that's the terminology that we use typically from breeding season or post breeding season through the end of the calendar year. And so if you encounter a bird that has any of these characteristics that are indicative of it being hatched that year, i.e., being a, a juvenile, then we consider it a hatch year. And if it's a bird that has an indication that it was hatched in a previous year, it's after hatch year or an adult. Well, things get a little quirky when once the calendar year turns over because it's no longer that juvenile bird is no longer a hatch year, right? because you're no longer in that year of hatch. So what happens at that point, and this is a specific point of confusion that was raised by one of the one of the folks that commented is they well, well so when do birds become second year or after second year? So typically what we do is we just once that calendar year rolls over, you have second year birds, those would be birds that were hatched the previous year. Or you have after second year birds, those that were hatched two at least two years prior. And I was kinda of wondering as I saw that post and the or saw the comments come rolling in and the confusion that emerged and one 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 guy asked, you know, when did this change occur and why are we using these terms? And like, well, I have to imagine it occurred something like this where somebody was using the simple terms of adult and juvenile and somebody took exception to that and said, wait a minute. And so then that just led to somebody saying, all right, well, we got to get a bit more technical and let's just use the human construct of a calendar year to define them, to la- <laughs> label them.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll admit that's not the way I think about it. I think about it kind of in the bird's life, you know, and those young immature or hatch year blue wings aren't a year old until you know june so that's that's the way i think about it but you're right the the nomenclature that you laid out is the standard in in sort of the duck world but this time of year i think we're safe saying hatch year birds or juvenile birds and after hatch year birds or adults that that simplifies it from my perspective.
3: Yeah, and so that's a little bonus duckology there for you. I'm, I'm sure there are a few technicalities that we somebody will ask us to clarify, and that's fine. We may or may not do that. I will say that a lot of these designations of hatch year, after hatch year, and even local birds, and then second year and after second year birds, those come into play a lot of times in banding operations where they're trying to classify birds based on you know when they were hatched relative to. Calendar year, that type stuff. So, you see a lot of reference to that in in our banding uh, operations. So. Uh- a little aside there and, and yeah. something.
1: the designation of local birds is one that we could probably talk about for a long time too. I mean if, if I was banding birds unless the bird was flightless I'm not sure I would call it a local yeah. bird because I think there's lots of movement that may happen once birds are on the wing that we probably don't really understand well.
3: And that's that's my understanding generally is it's it, as far as I know reserved for those birds that are flightless. Those hep birds that were hatched this year but that are still flightless and you can be confident. Confident that they are indeed local and haven't migrated into an area or moved into an area from some other location. So, interesting stuff. A little bonus information there for you. Oh, one, one thing. That's right. I almost forgot about this. I did not see Ulu in any of the pictures with you. Or if, if she was there, I overlooked her. And I know a few weeks ago, she got into a bee nest and got stung a few times. Is she still on the, the
1: IR? list no she she's good you, you didn't pay attention because there's one video of her doing a retrieve in that you know belly deep to a chihuahua water where she's pretty speedy so um, she was she was back off the uh, injured reserve and in in full operation and
3: yeah. I'm going to blame that on the Facebook algorithm for not showing me that video because I don't remember it.
1: Yeah, you'll have to check it. You'll have to check it out. Um, I also on the same one I had some videos of uh, dawiters seem to really like the skinny teal decoys, which are my silhouette teal. So.
3: well I saw that one I saw I saw that one and I thought of Tom Mormon immediately and sure enough he chimed in and identified the Witchers. lickety split so um it's good uh, let's see uh this yeah the skinny teal were the, the the decoys skinny teal silhouettes did they produce skinny ducks over your decoys or were they normal sized ducks everything good there
1: yeah every, everything good they didn't produce any two-dimensional ducks decoying, which which was good. I was looking for three-dimensional ones. But yeah, they, they there were definitely situations where the water was shallow and there was a little mud flat there that I
3: put out the teal silhouettes and they worked just fine. I'm guessing you had more trouble this year finding vegetation to hide in close enough to the water to, to effectively hide. Yeah, we, we didn't have
1: too much trouble with that. Like the, you know, there weren't there weren't 20 yards of mud flat between the shore. Um, the first day we did hunt, uh, we we hit in some bulrush, which there were some stands of bulrush on this wetland that we hunted. And it was thick enough that provided us with cover. Now, you know, I would I would share with folks, experienced guys who hunt blue wing teal would recognize that you probably don't have to be hit as well to hunt blue wings as you do if you're hunting late season mallards, you know, I would admit that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not quite as persnickety about how well I'm hidden with teal um, because they just, Don't seem to care as much. But uh, yeah, I was able to find hide. So it all worked.
3: And then you are planning to get out a few more times here over the next couple of weeks? I'll probably get out at least one more time focused on blue wings.
1: And then I travel to Saskatchewan to chase some cranes and some white fronts and some other things like that. So the season transitions quickly. But yeah, you won't see me pass up blue wings any chance I get at them because, you know, in addition to them being great ducks that I love seeing on the wing. They're also the best eaten duck in the marsh at this time of the year, at least in my location. They're super fat as they're preparing to migrate and there's not a better eaten duck out there right now.
3: And last question, do you have any read on the status of the the U.S. Canada border right now. I honestly haven't paid any attention to that.
1: Yeah, it's still open. there. If folks are traveling to Canada, there are definitely a number of hoops to jump through with showing up with a negative PCR COVID test. If you're flying, you have to have a test within 72 hours of when you fly back to the U.S. So people interested in traveling to Canada will definitely want to do their homework and uh, there's information available on Canadian Border Services website and and the same for the U.S. side. So there are a few extra hoops to go through, but yes, the border is open people are coming up to visit and after a year where that was not possible i think there's a bit of pent up demand to do that
3: so well scott i appreciate you taking the time and this has been a great great episode great information from uh, from canada early in early in september and we look forward to catching up with you again here probably we'll hold off until october until your your trip over to saskatchewan to to uh, reconnect with you and talk a little bit about sandhill crane hunting and how you did there so thank you scott you bet. Always a pleasure to, to join, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Scott Stevens with Ducks Unlimited Canada. We also thank our producer, Chris Isaac, our new producer for us. He's doing a great job getting these episodes out to you, the listener. And then, of course, to you, the listener, we appreciate your time and we appreciate your support for wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DUPodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team.